Welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. This is a continuation of a conversation that we had last week with Melissa Kane Travis on her book, Science and the Mind of the Maker, What the Conversation Between Faith and Science Reveals About God. Now, last week, we got into discussion on her children's books that she's written, uh, children's apologetics books, her work at Houston Baptist University, as well as the conflict between science and faith and how to deal with that. And so if you missed part one, I encourage you to go back, uh, listen to part one. Uh, now in part two, we are going to be jumping straight into her new book and discussing some of the things that point to a maker, what she calls the maker thesis. So, uh, Melissa, thank you so much for joining me for the second part. Yes, thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, you just mentioned the maker thesis and how these different areas of science all point to that. But in part one, you talked a lot about, too, uh, that really this does come down to a worldview issue. Um, and that uh, people take a worldview approach when looking at the evidence that sometimes changes how they view science and faith going together. And so uh, I think there's important to start this conversation with some definitions um, from the worldview perspective. And so maybe what do people think about faith? But especially, as you mentioned at the beginning of your book, um, naturalism, materialism, scientism, uh, what do those words mean? Well, just to be very clear up front, there are different nuances that different thinkers will give the definitions of these words. So I will just define them as I'm using them in the book. And the way that I've seen a lot of Christian thinkers define them as well. So naturalism is the idea that there is no such thing as God or anything like God. So there are no such things as unembodied minds or unembodied spirits or souls, in other words. Um, there is nothing that transcends us um, that has effect on the natural world. Basically, nature is it. Uh, materialism is a bit of a stronger view, the way I'm defining it. This is the idea that the only real things are things that are material. Okay, so um, this would rule out things like um, objective moral truths. It would rule out things like um, abstract objects, so-called abstract objects, like um, the materialist would not be able to say that numbers in the platonic sense really have an existence out there in their own realm somewhere. Um, the materialist would also have to deny that there is such thing as um, a mental realm um, where there are things like beliefs and desires and thoughts that can't be reduced to uh, brain chemistry. So the materialist would say we are our brains and the thoughts that we have are nothing other than brain states, so on and so forth. So if you had to summarize that view in a nutshell, it would be that everything that is real is material. It has an atomic structure. So that would make sense. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say that would make sense then, uh, going back to what we we're talking about worldviews. If you take a materialistic worldview approach to science, then faith, uh, something believing that we can receive divine revelation um, and that God exists, then obviously if science is materialistic, then those would contradict. Right. But the yes. question is, is science materialistic? And that would be a good question. Right, right, exactly. All right. And then finally, we have this worldview known as scientism. Um, and scientism is hard scientism. There Again, there are nuances to these definitions. 
there's something that's often referred to as soft science, scientism, then we have hard scientism. So hard scientism would be the idea that the only things that we can know to be true are things that can be shown through the empirical sciences. So mm -hmm. again, this is a view that rules out an awful lot of things because you can't prove things like moral truths in a test tube, right? Yeah. So um, scientism, a um, very, very strong, narrow worldview that says science is basically the be-all and end-all of human knowledge. And But you can't even test that statement in a test tube, that science is the be-all and end-all in scientific knowledge. Right, because that's a philosophical statement. So ultimately, it's a self-refuting worldview. Absolutely. So when you get into a lot of the sciences, um, those definitions are so important. And so people start to study science, and they start to say that there's scientific proof for the existence of God. Would you say that we have scientific proof for God's existence? No, I would not say that. We do not have scientific proof for the existence of God. And I'm using that word proof or the word prove um, in the way um, philosophers are using that word. We don't have um, incontrovertible deductive proof of the existence of God. But what we do have are excellent arguments for the existence of God that make the existence of God um, highly plausible um, and more likely than not. Um, and so I like to caution people away from using these words, prove and proof. And I know that there's kind of an old tradition in Christian apologetics back in maybe the late 80s through the late 90s, where instead of using the phrase apologetics arguments, apologists would often say apologetic proofs, and they would list things and refer to them instead of as arguments, they would call them proofs for the existence of God. Um, and I understand that they were not using those words in the more definitive sense that philosophers use those words, but at any rate, I think it was a mistake, and it eventually misled a lot of people who grew up studying that kind of apologetics um, into thinking, well, arguments, good arguments, constitute proof, when in fact, good arguments do no such thing. Good arguments just build a case beyond a reasonable doubt for something. Yeah. Um, and I think that's hugely important when we're talking about Christian apologetics in particular. Yeah. And I love the, the wording. I think as I read through a lot of scientific literature, um, it seems like the wording is very careful how it's said. Uh, but I think I've also heard William Lane Craig say something similar. And you said it in your book where you said that, no, we use scientific evidence that supports philosophical arguments whose conclusions have theological significance. Right. And so, yeah, we can use science to create premises in philosophical arguments that do point, you know, through deduction to a strong, uh, you know, conclusion that there is a God. Um, but it kind of it, that's the limitation, I guess you could say. It's not a scientific proof of God's existence. Right. And, you know, just to be clear, we also don't have scientific evidence against the existence of God. So we can't say, oh, we have scientific evidence for God. We can't say we have scientific evidence against God. What we can say is 
we have scientific evidence that can be used to support philosophical arguments that we're making either for or against the existence of God. So what would you say then as you, um, because oftentimes when you present those arguments, you receive what's called the God of the gaps argument that simply that we just have a gap in our knowledge. And so we just insert God in to explain something that we don't know yet. And so what would you say in response to someone that as they work through your cosmology and mathematics and and DNA and all the different chapters in your book, uh, they say, you know, just because we don't know how it got so fine-tuned or how it got so designed doesn't mean it was God. This is simply just a God of the gaps. So I think that where a lot of confusion comes in in this God of the gaps argument is that we aren't talking about an absence of information. What we're talking about is the information we already have. We're looking at data and asking philosophical questions about it. We're saying, okay, let's look at the structure of um, the DNA molecule, for example. Let's investigate what we know about its structure and its function and its capabilities and so on and so forth. Um, And let's ask the question, does this seem to point beyond, point beyond the material realm to some sort of intelligence? Now, that's not a gap argument. That is looking at the data we do have. We're not, we're not saying, oh, we have no idea how things came to be this way. Therefore, let's attribute it to a higher power. That's not it all what I'm doing in the book. And it's not something that Christian apologists should be doing either. I'd just like to add. And so um, we're avoiding the gaps accusation by just talking about the data that we do have. Um, And I'd like to point out on the flip side of that argument is a problem that we can refer to as a naturalism of the gaps. Because the, the person with the naturalistic worldview could point to something and say, oh, well, one day science will figure out why this data, this data, or this data seems to be pointing to intelligence because we know that couldn't possibly be the truth of the matter. There must be a naturalistic explanation. Um, And the problem is, more often than not, um, they're making these remarks about situations in which science can't ever offer an explanation for the state of affairs because it's very much a metaphysical question that we're asking about the data that we have. Um, And so um, we can turn the tables when it comes to this God of the gaps accusation and say, okay, um, are they holding out for a naturalistic explanation that can't possibly be forthcoming? Um, or do they really have a point when it comes to uh, giving a non-theistic, I guess you could say, explanation for whatever the scientific phenomenon is that's under discussion? All right. Yeah, that's a good explanation. Now, one thing I love about this book is that you don't rest solely on one aspect of science. Uh, you kind of take what you describe as being the puzzle approach, right? You put lots of different pieces together. Um, and you kind of build it off of six pieces. What is uh, the advantage to kind of that cumulative approach? 
Well, if you think of it at like a criminal court case, for example, and let's say that you have someone that's on trial for murder and you have maybe fingerprints at the scene that match their fingerprints, but you don't have anything else. However, there are enormous, there's an enormous amount of their fingerprints at the crime scene. Okay. Now, um, in a different situation, let's suppose that you have not only fingerprints, but you have uh, footprints that match their shoe size exactly. And you have security camera footage that looks an awful lot like them. And you also have an eyewitness who saw them drive up and park in front of the scene of the crime, for example. So you have um, perhaps the same amount of individual evidences against this person um, between situation one and situation two. But in situation two, you have all these different kinds of evidence that are pointing Mm -hmm. to the guilt of this person on trial. And that's a much more powerful case than if you just have a whole lot of one kind of evidence. And it goes back to the point that I made in part one of our interview with G.K. Chesterton um, and how when you have a vast accumulation of lots of different kinds of things all pointing to the same conclusion, it's a much more powerful case for the existence of God. Absolutely. So if you're listening and you want to figure out what those puzzle pieces are, and maybe to get all of them, then you'll have to go out and buy the book uh, and figure out what the different pieces are of evidence. So, But maybe in our last bit, uh, the time we have left, uh, to go over a few of those puzzle pieces and how they point to God rather than being kind of the God of the gap. So uh, the first piece that you mentioned is a finite universe. How does a finite universe point to uh, a maker? If our universe had an ultimate beginning an ultimate beginning of all matter and empty space and even time itself, then we're led to this inevitable question about what caused the beginning of all things. And I, in the book, go into something called the Kalam cosmological argument for the existence of God, which was made famous among us in the apologetics community and those who follow apologetics by Dr. William Lane Craig. And so the point of the argument is, if you have something that came into existence, there must be an explanation for for the beginning of that entity. And in this case, we're talking about the cosmos as a whole. And if the cosmos includes all things that are material um, or temporal or um, you know, spatio temporal, I guess would be a better way to say it, then we have to come up with a cause that is none of those things. And then I explain in the book why this leads to the conclusion that God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. Yeah, and I think this is such a great argument because as we just talked about with God of the gaps, it's not saying we don't know what happened and therefore God, but what we do know happened is that all of space, time, and matter came into existence a finite time ago. And so whatever created it has to be outside of space, time, uh, immaterial, uh, pointing to, a, you know, God, uh, or at least an immaterial world, which would disprove naturalism and materialism. Right. We're pointing to the data that we do have. We're pointing to 
um, the best theories in cosmology today and talking about the theistic implications that can be drawn from the best theories and data that we have today. Now, the naturalist is in a bit of a predicament because they have the same data and theories that we're pointing to, um, and they have to say, well, there must be some other naturalistic explanation, and so they construct these highly speculative theories that we can't possibly ever have empirical data for, observational data for. Um, so it just goes to show the lengths that many naturalists and materialists will go to simply to avoid um, the theistic philosophical conclusion of the data. Now, here's a kind of a different question um, that uh, just popped into my head. I, I heard uh, actually a student asked me at a Q&A, and I don't know if you have an answer to this or not, um, but we were going over logical impossibilities. You know, God can't uh, create a one-ended stick or a two-horned unicorn, and God can't create a married bachelor and those sort of things, and that we can rule those out because they're logically impossible. And so the student raised their hand and said, well, then what about creating everything out of nothing? Wouldn't that be an, a logical impossibility to have no nothing and then God to create everything? Uh, doesn't that mean that there has to be some sort of material quantum vacuum or something of that sort? Uh, how, how would we get around maybe that on, of being logically impossible to create everything out of nothing? Well, I'm not seeing a logical contradiction there. So um, there's no rule of logic that I'm aware of that would conclude that you cannot have a mind with the power of producing all things ex nihilo or out of nothing. Um, so that would be my response. If someone wanted to say that's a logical impossibility, then what they have to do is produce a law of logic that rules that out. And there mm. isn't one. Yeah. All right. That's good. Um, so another kind of piece of the puzzle that you go into in a couple different ways is kind of the idea of fine-tuning. Uh, how would you kind of uh, summarize and explain the idea of, of fine-tuned universe? To the person who doesn't have a background in um, cosmology, astrophysics, and all those crazy, difficult mathematical sciences, uh, the way I explain it very simply is that there are parameters of our universe and um, we could talk about the laws of nature, for example, in which there are things called constants and quantities. Now, these constants and quantities have numerical values, and these numerical values are the things that theoretical physicists use in their crazy advanced mathematical calculations to try to understand the fundamental structure of reality, uh, of material reality specifically. And we, it's interesting because these, the numerical values of these constants and quantities, they are not the result of natural laws themselves. They seem arbitrary, in other words. So in order to find out the values of these constants and quantities, we actually have to take measurements, scientific measurements, to figure out what they are. One example of a constant would be something called the gravitational constant. And we have this number that is 
plugged into the calculations every single time we want to measure the gravitational force between two material bodies. So that number stays the same. Um, and it turns out that these numerical values, these constants and quantities, cannot have been different than they are by just these infinitesimally small amounts because otherwise it would be impossible for life to exist in our universe. And we can look at a broad range of these. I only go over a few in the book, but I think at last count there were at least three dozen of these that have been identified to be just highly fine-tuned within a very, very, very narrow specified range of value. Um, and it's not just each individual one, but the way they all fit together with each other um, that makes our universe so incredibly fine-tuned for the existence of life. Awesome. And what's cool about that is that not only, yeah, our universe fine-tuned, but then our Earth is so designed that makes the possibility of life uh on earth possible. And, and even um, Isabel wrote in on Instagram and just said, you know, it's interesting how there's only one planet of people and animals, you know, ocean, everything in our entire universe. Uh, so what is it that makes our planet so unique to allow for scientific discovery and for the life? Oh, there are all sorts of things. I have an entire chapter on this about how not only is our planet finely tuned to be habitable, to life and intelligent life at that, um, but it's also finely tuned for the existence of the scientific disciplines as well. And there are all sorts of things that play into this, things like um, our distance from the sun, um, the tilt of the imaginary axis on which the Earth spins, um, the availability of certain um certain things in the Earth's crust, minerals, um, the hardwoods that we have that can be used to manufacture the types of fuels that are necessary to in turn have hotly burning fires that in turn aided us in the trajectory of scientific progress. Without fire, there never would have been um, science. Um, so uh, the concentration of the gases in the atmosphere of our planet, um, just all sorts of things um, that go into making this both a habitable place and a place where we can have scientific discovery. Now, one thing I love, uh, one section that I read, um, I, I recently this summer, I had a student come up to me after one of my presentations on intelligent design uh, and arguing against me and my idea of believing in a Big Bang uh, or beginning um, and saying, no, it has to be instantaneous supernatural creation. God had to just create it. Uh, it can't have been this sort of gradual creation. And you address this issue, uh, but maybe quickly, um, why is it that Hey, God, gradual creation or instantaneous supernatural creation, they both need a creator. Yes. Did, did God have to create everything instantaneously at a snap of a finger or the sound of his voice? You know, this objection is so interesting to me. I've never quite been able to figure out why someone would think that because God designed a process and set it into motion or designed a mechanism and then allowed the mechanism to do the work he intended for it to do, 
somehow lessened God's genius. I yeah. mean, I think that's a rather bizarre thing to say. And interestingly enough, back in the late 19th century, um, these kinds of arguments were going on. Um, and there were Christians. These were actually Christians who um, were defending the idea um, of the universe coming to be the way it is over a period of time rather than being mature at an instantaneous creation. Um, some of them were defending Darwin's theory of biological evolution by natural selection. But I love the analogies that they used. Um, one, um, Asa Gray, he was a botanist at Harvard University who was actually in favor of the theory of evolution by natural selection, but he was a devout Christian, and he believed that it was a process that was fully designed and ordained by God. And he gave this analogy that I thought was really interesting. He said, um, let's take a woman from centuries ago and show her a piece of cloth and ask her to tell us how the cloth came into existence. Well, the woman would go into an explanation about how you have to have a weaver and a weaver's loom, and you take this thread and you wind it on the loom, and you, you go through this whole process of producing this piece of cloth by manual labor. And then tell the woman that no hands have ever, ever touched this cloth, and explain to her the mechanics of modern-day power looms that produce cloth, um, even better than the cloth that was produced entirely by hand before the invention of the machine. Well, is that woman then going to say that there was no design or intention that went into the making of the cloth? Of course not. She's going to be even more impressed at, at the human ingenuity that had to go into the production of the cloth that came from the power loom. And I love that analogy because it, it says, look, however God created, however long he took to create, and by whatever preordained mechanisms he put in place, the glory still 100% goes to him because otherwise none of it would have happened. So it's it's just interesting to me that um that anyone would think that just because God uses what we call secondary causation, uh, that it's not still 100% divine causation. Very good. Um, wow, we are, we're almost out of time. We only have about two minutes left, or a little bit less. Uh, so I want to bring up one last question, a topic that I don't think I've ever discussed on the show before because I don't really like math. Um, <laughs> but uh, you mentioned in your book how the uh, objective mathematical truths create a problem for materialistic philosophy. Why does math create a problem for materialism? Well, they have to explain why we have uh, these things that we refer to as numbers and um, mathematical objects, math mathematical truths. Uh, that seem to be objectively and timelessly true, but moreover, these things map on to the material world with this uncanny precision. So if you want to say mathematics is just this game invented by the human mind, then you have no explanation whatsoever 
for why it is such an amazing tool when it comes to scientific discovery. Um, so we have to ask, well, where did math, where did all this objective mathematical truth come from? Um, and why is it so useful in telling us about the fundamental structure of material reality? And I, I do not believe that the naturalist ha can even possibly have an explanation for this because it's very much a metaphysical question. And um, we're talking about immaterial things um, that, as I said, map with great precision onto the material cosmos. And that's a huge conundrum for them, I think. Wow. So interesting. I wish we could continue, but we are out of time. And so uh, to those that are listening, go and check out Science in the Mind of the Maker by Melissa Kane Travis, a great introduction to science. And there's so much more information uh, that we could not get into on this show. And Melissa, thank you for taking the time in these last uh, two shows uh, with me to discuss your new book. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And where can people go to find out more information on you? So, and what you're writing. And my website is melissatravis.com. Um, and I'm also a regular contributor to Christian Research Journal. So if you go to their website, um, you can access my articles that I've written there. Um, and then my book is available um, through all the major book retailers. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation with Melissa Kane Travis as much as I did. Go check out her great content she's producing. Next week, I'll be interviewing Dr. Hugh Ross from Reasons to Believe on his new book, Always Be Ready. So send in those questions on social media. Sip coffee, think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly. Love. Love will guide my way.